Welcome to Self-Compassionate Professor, a career wellness podcast for mid-career and recovering academics who want more, more meaning, balance, rest, joy, and more clarity. Our motto here is no regrets. So glad you're here. Hello, hello, welcome. You are listening to episode 159, and I'm Danielle Delamar. This month in March of 2023, I'm really devoting the podcast to episodes that highlight connection, connecting to yourself more deeply, connecting to others who may not be in your immediate circle, right? Like reaching out, really reaching out to people you may have not talked to before and being willing to enter conversations um, with uncertainty and curiosity and being willing to learn from those conversations and allow those conversations, those connections to inform your career decisions. So in the spirit of connection building, I am re-releasing the interview I did with Dr. Alex Ketchum. This interview first released in January of 2022. So it's been just over a year and definitely worth revisiting the lessons. So I'll go ahead and rewind to January 2022 now. I interviewed Dr. Alex Ketchum, who wrote a book on public scholarship, and how to sort of expand your vision of what your scholarship should look like or could look like. And I really loved her message. Like it, it just, it felt like there was, there was so much possibility for individual academics, but also for the academy in general. What she says is that it's really in our best interest to make our scholarship publicly available, to make it accessible to society, right, beyond academia. And she talks about all the different ways you can do that, from blogs to podcasts to gatherings at public libraries to creating a website. And again, what I love about this interview is that it opens us up to possibilities. Right, Your career doesn't have to be so rigidly engineered. If you are feeling called to write a blog, you know, Alex would say, do it. She does warn there are risks. But in general, if you are feeling like you want to do something like that, give that gift to the world. Give that gift to yourself. I loved Alex's open and sort of thought-provoking way of thinking about research. So yeah, give it a listen. Hopefully you'll have some good ideas yourself. Hopefully you'll be open to some possibilities. Okay, here's the interview now. Thank you so much for joining today. I am talking to Dr. Alex Ketchum, faculty lecturer at the Institute for Gender, Sexuality, and Feminist Studies at McGill University and author of Engage in Public Scholarship a guidebook on feminist and accessible communication. Alex, Alex, how's it going? It's going well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is so my pleasure. I think I told you via email 
that this is a gap in the podcast. We have not talked really about engaging in scholarship in a, in a public way, in an accessible way. Um, and I think there are a lot of um, academics who are afraid of that. Um, so I'm really, really, really glad that you're here to talk about it and maybe ease some fears <laughs> and concerns. Yeah, I hope I can do so. I think one thing is that I will definitely make sure to address a lot of those fears and concerns because many of them are valid in terms of worrying about what it means to do public scholarship, what are the risks of it, but also to talk about a lot of the benefits of it and actually the practical how-tos, because those are important as well. So let's do that. But before we do that, tell me about sort of your personal connection to this. Why was it so important for you to write the book, to be an advocate for public scholarship? Definitely. So I started writing the book based on my experiences of doing public scholarship and particularly through my work as the director of this speaker and workshop series I run. It's called Disrupting Disruptions, the Feminist and Accessible Publishing, Communications and Technologies Speaker and Workshop Series. So, so far it's been 49 events since 2019. And through my work running the series and doing the videos off of it and managing people and booking rooms and doing Zoom webinars and all these things, people would always come to me asking questions about how do I do this for my own speaker and workshop series and so forth. And something that I am really committed to in a lot of my work is to try to tear down certain barriers of access of learning those kinds of skill sets. So I wrote the book in part uh, to answer some of those questions that people had for me about my own work. Um, and also to kind of develop my own skills even further to engage in some of the kind of critical discourse around these issues a bit more. Okay, so what's your um, what's your favorite skill that you've learned in in the process of doing this work? Um, I guess I'll I'm going to kind of cheat the question and say it's kind of a category <laughs> of skills. Um, because okay. through my work in doing this, I've started to foreground. Uh, disability justice a lot more. So I've been someone who's been interested, especially in event organizing, uh, both through scholarly purposes, activist purposes, community building purposes, art purposes for a really long time. Like even since like middle school and high school, I was organizing big events. Uh, and I always loved doing that. But through my work over the years and engaging with a lot of uh, disability justice, scholars, organizers, activists, I really started to think so much more critically about issues of ableism within public scholarship of all forms, not just event organizing, and thinking through like what it means to hire cart captionists to do live captioning of events by professional humans, or what kinds of spaces are we choosing for the venue, but also thinking about accessibility, in a broader way, right? In terms of, is this an event that's accessible to parents? Is there childcare? What kinds of foods are being served? When it comes to like the literature we're producing, is it accessible for people in multiple languages and so forth? So I think the skill set that I've been really happy to build over the last few years in particular has to do with really foregrounding what it means to make things accessible and I'm very grateful to all of the amazing um, activists who have kind of guided me towards that. Okay. I'm 
guess I'm kind of wondering about the sort of beginning of building that skill set when <laughs> it was kind of rough and you were probably doing some self-judgment and like feeling bad and all of that. Do you have like a, a story that can sort of capture that and help us all to feel a little bit better about our mistakes so that we can move forward and do the good work? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think one big thing to do is when people take the time to call you in about a mistake you've made, listening to that, not as in a form of like, oh, I've messed up. I'm like, I'm terrible. I should stop doing things. But instead of people take the time to say like, hey, that event, there were stairs and not everyone could access that and listening to that concern. Or I had a colleague say, you know, the people that you invited to give um, workshops on podcasting, they don't create transcripts, you know, so that's something you should incorporate in the future. And so actually taking the time to listen to that criticism and respond in a way that actually met the needs of the community and the people I was trying to reach, that was really important. Is it easy to get criticism? No, of course not. But I think when people take the time to explain things to you, that's a form of generosity um, that they're doing. And so trying to like value that and understand that. But yeah, over the years, like other things too, or even if a room on a website, on the university website says it's accessible, it might not actually be because there might be a single step or there might be other kinds of issues, right? Because there's all kinds of different disabilities and other kinds of needs in terms of like, is there a gen all gender bathroom nearby or other things like that? Um, so yeah, so I think it's really been that I've been able to just grow because of people's generous feedback. Okay. And so we've been talking about this as sort of like events, uh, gathering spaces, but I know you mean something bigger when you say public scholarship. What does it all entail? Yeah, for sure. So um, in the book, I go through a lot of different types um, that you might be interested in engaging in. And you might look at the book and think, oh my gosh, I can't do all of this. I have my teaching responsibilities, my research, my service. This is overwhelming. But the point of the book isn't to say you have to do all of it. It's more to provide options. So it can be a variety of things. Maybe it's that you really want to engage um, other audiences with your work through your writing, but that requires maybe a different type of writing that isn't behind a journal's paywall, right? So maybe creating blog post versions of your text or maybe curating an exhibit related to your research that you do. Or uh, there's sections on if you yourself don't want to, you know, do kind of like writing or creating your own podcast and stuff like that. If you don't want to actually produce it, there's also sections in the book of like how to work with journalists, how to speak on other people's podcasts or radio shows, how to write op-eds, right? So it provides a variety of different strategies, everything ranging from like using social media in a, as like your scholarly social media. I mean, like it's cool also if you have your personal Instagram or Finsta, so a variety of different strategies. And a big part of it is that not every form talked about in the book will work for every audience that you want to address, you know? So if you're doing certain kinds of research on a certain community that doesn't have a lot of access to broadband internet, maybe creating 
little videos might not be the best idea, but maybe creating zines or pamphlets or something that's like recorded or tangible, right? So you're going to have to kind of pick what will work best for the people you want to address and also your own kind of research project. If you have very visual research, maybe something that is also like a website or social media or an exhibit might work really well. Or if, you know, you work with music, then obviously like auditory um, choices would be good. So let's talk about the benefits and why public scholarship is so important. Yeah, for sure. So um, I think there's both selfish and then kind of altruistic benefits. So I'll start with the selfish ones first, because I do understand that a lot of the audience listening are probably feeling already overwhelmed with a lot of their workload, trying to balance a lot of things. So they might say like, yeah, that sounds really nice to do things like, you know, making my research for larger communities, but like I'm barely keeping my head above water. But some of these strategies are actually not too time intensive, but I think can actually bring a lot to you as a scholar. So for example, let's say that you do a reading or a presentation at your local public library or independent bookstore. A lot of the audiences that will be attending that kind of event are not going to be the same audiences that would hear you speak at an academic conference or on campuses, right? It's going to be a different kind of crowd. And so the kinds of questions that you'll receive oftentimes will be quite different and actually can encourage you to explore new avenues within your own research. I know that when I've given talks at bookshops and libraries, I've actually really gained so much and thought about my research in new ways. Um, in terms of kind of the more altruistic side of benefits, I think we as scholars, especially those of us at public institutions, do have a duty of taking our research to other audiences. So like in a really kind of concrete example, I'm at McGill University. So it's a it's a state university, right? Taxpayer money funds the university. Um, and so I feel that my research shouldn't just stay behind paywalls. I want to make sure that society at large can benefit from some of this research. And it doesn't mean that everything I write and produce needs to be for every audience. That's impossible. You know, a lot of us have certain commitments where we might want to write something that's highly theoretical or highly specific with lots of jargon for maybe the 10 people in our field that are interested in it. And I'm not saying that that's bad, but I am saying maybe think of creating another version that larger amounts of people can also benefit from. So there's the one of like kind of our duty to others as educators, as researchers, as being part of the society that we're in. And then there's also the like what you can get out of it. And it's really, it's really nice to be able to get feedback on your work from communities outside of maybe your small 10 people in your like right. <laughs> group, right. you know? And, and, and like more exciting and yeah. I don't know, just feeling like you're part of society as opposed yeah. <laughs> to, you know, the ivory tower world. I was just going to say, and another thing too, is that while we are seeing, you know, certain trends of distrust of, expert knowledge right in society like think about all of the different things that you can bring to these conversations right you are an expert in your field and it's really wonderful to be able to share your expertise and despite these kinds of conversations like mistrust of scholars 
Um, I think a lot of people really appreciate hearing from someone who has a lot of knowledge about a certain specific topic. There's, there's, there's definitely a thirst for that kind of feedback and mm-hmm. stuff. So, yeah. And, and I'm also wondering if you could give us an example, maybe, um, and maybe this comes from the work you've done in disrupting disruptions or from maybe somebody you've worked with, but an example of, you know, going out, sharing your research in a more public way, and then getting this glimpse of, oh, I could think about it this way, um, in which is totally new for me. Do you have um, a, a sort of an anecdote that gives us a glimpse of what that might look like? Yeah, I can actually talk about kind of my original like research that I did before this book, kind of the stuff I worked on in my master's and my uh, PhD. So I wrote about the history of lesbian feminist restaurants, cafes, and coffee houses from 1972 and 1989 in the U.S. and Canada. Um, and so as part of that research, I would speak at different kinds of events and so forth, like I've mentioned, um, different kind of public gatherings and so forth. And the reason why I say lesbian feminist restaurants now is because I was always saying feminist over and over and over again. And some crowd members were like, well, you're talking about a lot of lesbian feminists. Are you trying to hide the fact that you're talking about lesbian feminists? You know, and just that kind of question made me kind of rearticulate parts of my project. And it wasn't that I was trying to hide this. It was a big part of the history. But just even having that feedback from community members was really useful. Or I've had other kinds of questions about well, what do you mean by this thing? You know, because there are certain terms that will become accepted amongst maybe your colleagues, but then someone might be like, but that doesn't really make sense. You know, so there's sometimes just sometimes getting a question that'll help you redefine your project or a little bit more, or someone might share a bit of personal experience that may make you think, hmm, I've definitely missed out on something. Or one really great thing had been when I would talk about the the restaurant project um, in public spaces, I would get people who would come up to me and share their own experiences of eating at those restaurants at the time and then connecting me to other people. So it ended up being kind of this like snowballing effect, um, giving me other like research leads. Um, So yeah, I find again, not to overuse the word generous, but I do find that in doing public scholarship, there is a bit of like generosity that you're sharing with your research and that oftentimes the people that are engaging with that work will also be generous in return. I, d- I don't want to be all fluffy. Like we can also talk about some of the risks of public scholarship and why some of your listeners might be worried about engaging in it. There are definitely challenges and risks in doing this, but I do find that I've overwhelmingly benefited from doing this work. Okay, so I do want to talk about that, but I do want to say before we move on to that part, you know, there are a lot of people who listen to my podcast who are really hitting a wall in their careers and they're Mm -hmm. feeling like they might be thinking about a career pivot. Um, They might be leaving. And so this is not just about like finding new research leads. This could also be sort of dipping your toe into consulting work or speaking work or. Yes, 
I'm so glad you said that. Yeah, there's a there's a whole section of the book that talks about that. I just didn't mention it. Um, yeah, I think, <laughs> I think it's really great um, because you can also try out like different kinds of media production you might be interested in. It can connect you with new kinds of like jobs and leads. Also, you might also get consulting opportunities out of it because you might be someone going on podcasts or producing your own podcast and then someone might offer you a job because of that work as well so yeah there are definitely also like financial and labor opportunities that can come off of this work as well I'm so glad you raised that and I'm also thinking about people and it's not just right about jobs maybe you really do want to start a side gig and maybe Mm. that's going to be sort of a thing that's going to let you do the kind of work you want to do that you can't totally do in academia. And there are a lot of academics who sustain side gigs and also keep their academic jobs. Something that has been said on the podcast so many times, um, just in a different context. And it is talk to non-academics. Yeah. (laughs) Talk to non-academics. Leave the environment and see what else is out there. It's so, so important. Yeah, definitely. I'm so glad you brought this up. And yeah, it's really key. And also, it's like a great way to experiment and grow new skill sets, which I know, again, can be like a fear for people of saying like, oh, well, it'd be really great to build a website about my research, but I don't know how to do that. And so (laughs) in the book, I actually explain like certain strategies of building websites of different levels of like coding knowledge and how to develop that knowledge as well. Or also if you want to like outsource that, how to do that. Um, But it can also be a great way to experiment like, oh, is this something I want to get into more? Do I want to grow this skill set of making websites? Is that something else I could do? Right. So it can be a good way to kind of use a realm that you might be more comfortable with, such as the kind of research topics that you're usually working with, but then like pushing it in a new direction to experiment a bit, you know, so you still have that safety while you're also dealing with the kind of experimentation phase. Oh, Alex, this is so good. It's just making me think about there's so many new ways to think about your work. Like if you are kind of excited about this and you're like, oh, I am, I could get into some of this public scholarship stuff. Um, that's really intriguing to me. What are some sort of questions you should ask yourself to help you to sort sort of figure out how you might want to get involved um, and who you might want to be working with. One of the ways that I tend to go is like, is there a certain community of people that I'm trying to reach? So um, I'll kind of give like a personal example for my own research. Uh, So when I was doing my doctorate, um, one of the things was that I wanted to create uh, a website with a representative map of what I was finding and a directory because I wanted to give back to the people who I had been interviewing and also their kind of broader communities, um, as well as like sharing information with other people who might be interested about these histories. And so when I was developing kind of like, okay, well, what would be the best way to share this information? Okay, most of the users did have broadband internet access. They were interested in like going on a website. Okay, cool. Um, But then I thought, okay, well, let me experiment with different types of maps to represent. Maybe I can have a map where people interact with it and writing comments into it. And I found no one was interested in doing that, right? So I had to like scrape that idea and go back to, I just have like a very simple like Google map, which has its own issues because of like proprietary stuff. But 
it was like I had to meet the community where they were at and what they were interested in. Or some of them had Facebook pages of remembrance pages of these restaurants from the 70s. And so I shared information on their pages. So sometimes it would be about going to where the people I wanted to address were. And sometimes it was about trying to bring people to a place or sometimes it was trying to like expand outwards beyond that community. So I think part of it is like coming up with a list of goals. Like who do you want to hear your message? Why um, are you hoping that maybe you can expand the people who are engaging with your research? Are you trying to like share a particular message? And then that can help you move forward. Is it that you want to inform the public about something like maybe you're um, an expert on this like one type of water research that has to do with something with the environment, right? And that your county or your state or your province is going to pass new water regulations. Maybe an op-ed would be a great way to address a large public audience about that. But maybe it's that, you know, like it really has to do with what your research is, what your goals are, who you want to speak to, and then you can kind of pick the, the format that might work best to um, find them. But if you are doing public scholarship in order to kind of experiment with new things, then maybe if it's actually about the the format itself, right, you're like, oh, I really want to create a podcast, then you might actually be less worried about the audiences at first, experiment with creating that podcast, and then kind of see who listens. So again, I think it's a really personal thing of figuring out what your goals are. Okay, okay. And this is the deal too. I'm thinking about like, the fact that this is so new to so many of us and to like kind of get excited about all the new possibilities and try them on and all of that, that's super fun. And I think it requires a certain mindset of like, this could be interesting and fun and open and, you know, you kind of need to be curious and well, you really need to be curious mm. and to be okay with some of the stuff that might come up that you're not really expecting and that might you might not necessarily welcome <laughs> in your yeah, life. For sure. Um, so I guess that's what we're that's where we're kind of going at this point anyway, right? Because you had said, look, there are challenges, there are risks. Yeah. So the thing is is that like a lot of these risks are going to be gendered and racialized and also like contextual, like to where you're living. So oftentimes also cost and so forth. But for example, when one is engaging in public scholarship, right, you are then putting yourself out there more in the public. And so oftentimes women, people of color, women of color, um, non-binary, trans people, LGBTQ community members, they're often more likely to receive public backlash and personal attacks. So this can take the form of trolling or doxing, which is like a form of uh, trolling that can involve like uh, people finding your like personal information and targeting you with harassment, um, different kinds of online harassment or phone harassment and so forth. So, um, and that particularly is born, but not exclusively by women, people of color, women of color, LGBTQ community members and so forth. Um, and so that can be anything from like, you make a social media post and there's responses or you talk on a news station and there's like calls to your um, office and so forth. 
So I don't want to undermine that at all. I actually um, did research in the summer of 2020. So I'm in Canada, right? So in the summer of 2020, my research team and I, we contacted every Canadian university's media relations office and asked them what supports they had for scholars that were receiving kind of online harassment and trolling in response to their media work. And with the exception of one university, none of them had a plan in place. And even that one university's plan was pretty vague. Um, and I have this report available online for free. It's like, um, if you just Google like report on harassment um, and then my name, you should find it. Um, but in doing this work, a lot of the offices said they'd never thought about it and that they're going to kind of try to work on this. So hopefully they do. But so there is this kind of risk in doing this work. Um, and I think it's important to be aware of that risk and also have a plan in place, which I talk about both in the book and in that report of having a plan of like, okay, if this happens, lock down everything to private, like all of your social media accounts to private, um, you know, contact if you're employed at a university, contact your director to let them know what's going on, uh, like your department head or so forth, um, whether you're a grad student, adjunct, tenure track professor, tenured, um, try to like connect with your university in case the trolling goes to that level. Um, yeah, so it's really important to be aware of these kinds of risks, but I would say that overwhelmingly, this work is beneficial. Um, but it, I mean, especially if you're doing work that deals with feminist or uh, anti-racist work also, you're more likely to kind of see receive these kinds of like threats or harassment as well. So it's kind of the thing of right, like if you're labeling yourself as feminist in public, for example, you know that if you've done that already as a scholar, you know that you're more likely to kind of receive backlash. So, okay. so, so that's the negative side. I think the other negative sides to talk about too, are that like this is work, right? You are talking about a lot of the people listening to this podcast are pretty tired. I listened to your episode about burnout um, recently. And right, so scholars are being asked to do more and more and more. Um, and so like this is labor and sometimes it can be hard to find the time. Um, but at least for me, a lot of the public work that I've done tends to be the stuff that actually gives me more energy and motivates me about my research far more than writing a journal article. I mean, some of you out there might really like writing journal articles, but for me, it's just like, and the whole peer review process, it can take so long and feel so unrewarding over time. But when it comes to something that's like a blog post or sharing something on a podcast or a news show or a video, right, you can actually get this nice feeling of like instantaneous feedback, which can feel great. Um, and then in terms of also, right, like I mentioned adjuncts, grad students, non-tenure track people and tenure track people, you know, like universities don't tend to value this work. They say they value public scholarship, but most of them don't actually really support it. They don't value it that much in tenure files. And then if you're non-tenure track or an adjunct, again, it's like not valued as much by the academy itself. But I think for me, the question I always ask with any work I'm doing is, who am I actually committed to? Who are my communities that I want to serve and who am I loyal to, right? Like, what is my grounded motivation? And like, is it, I mean, I'm non-tenure track, so it's definitely not a tenure dossier, 
um, though I do have like yearly reviews, but it's more about like, I want to make sure that people actually can use this work that I've been spending my life on and can benefit from it. So that's something that keeps me going. But the book does talk about kind of the material conditions and our labor um, more explicitly. So so I, I, I don't know. I just feel the need to um, to highlight those things that you said about the energy that you can get from from engaging in, in a broader audience and um, and talking to more people and like you said the instant feedback oh my gosh right like yeah. I can produce an episode of a podcast every week and it's yeah. like done right like on yeah. Sundays it's published and it's not this like you know long peer-reviewed process it's done and wow that's great and people are coming to me and talking to me about it and that's just a very different experience and so i want to highlight how rewarding it can be and i don't want people to miss that don't miss that don't miss out on that yeah i guess i'm like totally buying your message because i feel it i really feel it it's so important like the pandemic has been so hard on so many people, I would say all of us in different ways. And I was feeling just so tired. And this summer for fun, I curated an exhibit on queer cookbooks. And like, yes, it is a scholarly activity, but it also was just so amazing to have this exhibit that I, it's been up and I'm taking it down actually later this month. But, and it was on a university campus. So it's kind of in this like in between, it's like public, but it's also kind of still within like the ivory tower sense. But it was just in a hallway. It wasn't in the library. It was in this kind of liminal space that mm. thousands and thousands of undergrads and grad students and professors and members of the public pass through every day. And just to get the feedback from students of being like, oh, I didn't know research could be cool. I didn't know that I could go to queer archives, that there were queer archives in the city. You know, like all these different things of just getting this feedback from people who, you know, if I had published an article on this topic right away, I don't know, 10 readers. I mean, I don't want to undermine my own scholarly impact in journal articles, but you know, it can be niche, but to have all of these students and um, members of the public also kind of talk to me about it and say like, oh, now I want to read these books, or I want to do this, or I want to go into this, or I didn't even think about this, or this helped me connect to like, what it means to be like a member of LGBTQIA2S plus like communities, right? Like all these different things. And it was just like, it was it still was work. It was a lot of work, but it felt really good. And it was fun too. It, it made me then excited to then write about it in a more formal way afterwards too. So I think sometimes doing this kind of different forms of communication and publishing and just talking with others can also just like give you that like motivation again, also to produce some of the other work that we're more formally trained to do as well. Right. It, it like re-energizes you. And I think it, you know, a lot of us got into scholarship because we were excited and curious and we're cra craving like nuance. And if we're always producing our work in the same kind of format, we lose some of that sparkle, I guess. Oh, I love that. What a great way to put it. Yeah. Um, okay. So all of that said, 
tell me what you want to leave us with so that um, you feel like the conversation we've had is complete. Yeah, for sure. I think one thing is that um, I want to just highlight that it's okay to be a beginner at things. I think a lot of us are so used to feeling like I have to be an expert and know what I'm doing. And sometimes that can create a fear about experimenting with other forms of scholarship, right? Like, oh, but I don't know how to code or I don't know how to make a podcast or, you know, I'm not really that great at social media, you know? And so like, it's okay to be a beginner at this stage and learn and grow and develop those skill sets and that they are something that it's not just like someone is like born with, it's a skill set that you cultivate. And so the book really has like practical, like, so part one is kind of more of the like kind of placing the theory. It's like challenges of access um, and talking about a lot of debates around open access, open data, what it means to do public scholarship. But the second part is called toolkits. And it's really about how to do this work, how to do it in ways that are sustainable for you in terms of labor, sustainable for you as a scholar, more sustainable for the environment, sustainable for the duration of the projects. Um, and really just to try to break down a bunch of these barriers. So I want this book to be quite practical for people as well. And it provides a lot of other resources of other places to look and grow those skill sets in addition to what is described in the book. Um, and then I guess in final words, I just want to encourage you to try. You know, it doesn't have to be that you're like, oh, now I'm a publicly engaged scholar now and that I'm a completely <laughs> new person, right? It could literally be that you just put your research, like you do one digital storytelling version. So not even a commitment to a full podcast or you decide to write one op-ed and just start there. Start with a baby step. Just try something new. It doesn't mean that you have to shift everything. It, it can just be you try it and see how it feels. And then you can go from there and experiment a bit more. Would you mind just saying to um, what sort of your hopes and dreams are for um, for academics when they sort of get their hands on your book and the information that you provide? What do you wanna see? I really hope that people find it useful <laughs> and they actually <laughs> then take some of the things that are recommended in it and put it into practice. I'm really hoping that I see scholars who of all generations of scholars at all levels producing things that speak to more general audiences. I think it will be in the benefit of the academy and mm -hmm. for society at large, but also, you know, there's like some hidden messages. I mean, they're pretty explicit, but hidden <laughs> messages for kind of like administrators as well about like how to value different types of labor within the academy. Um, and I think also one thing with this book too, there is a whole chapter on open access and then another one on kind of open data and open source. And like the book itself will also be available open access, so free for readers. Um, and it's also in paperback, which you can pre-order now. Um, but I okay. also want people to not be so, there's a lot of kind of fear around what it means to do open access work. Um, and I hope that maybe some of this book will also kind of shift people's ideas around what it means to make their work accessible. Okay, wonderful. And how do people get the book? And how yeah. do they reach you? 
For sure. Okay, so to get the book, right now you can pre-order it. So through um, in Canada, UBC Press is distributing it for Concordia University Press, and the University of Chicago Press is distributing it for the United States. Um, I will give you the link because it would be weird to like say all the URL letter by letter. Oh, yeah, yeah, um, totally. <laughs> and if you um, order now, um, basically before the com book comes out and you use the code Ketchum20, so it's my last name and then 20, you receive a 20% discount price off the cover price. So that's if you cool. want the paperback version, which would be cool, but also it will be available open access, freely available um, if you prefer to access it in digital form. And how do we get in touch with you if we want to? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> I should plug myself. Um, so um, I'm on Twitter is probably my most like public um, social media handle. So at a catchem 22, like catch 22. Um, so a catchem 22. I also have a website out Um and yeah, those would be the best. I also have a kind of scholarly Instagram, Dr. Alex Ketchum is my handle there. So yeah, okay. I'm pretty available and you can find all my like email address and all that stuff at those websites and links as well. Awesome. Awesome. I love it so much. Alex, this is so, this is such important work. You're like busting us out of like business as usual in the academy and we're, it, it's like, it's, it, I feel like there's some momentum here that's going to change some things. Do you feel that way? I hope so. I don't know. Something's got to <laughs> change. <laughs> we have to have right? something to feel hopeful about. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun and such a pleasure. And I really enjoyed your podcast and I appreciate the work you're doing. It's wonderful. So thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. And ditto, I appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you so much for listening to Self-Compassionate Professor. This normally would be the time I tell you where you can follow me on social media, but I'm mostly quitting social media. It's the self-compassionate thing to do. I'm still on LinkedIn, but uh, I rarely post. So don't follow me. Send me a connection request and send me a message. And as always, you can schedule a 20-minute consult at selfcompassionateprofessor.com. And I'm sending a wish that you too will do the self-compassionate thing, whatever that is for you. Take care.